0: Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I know for me, a lot of things have felt super overwhelming and out of control. Um, I was actually talking on a panel earlier this week and I mentioned how it feels like we are sort of waking up every morning, not really knowing what news is gonna come at us. And we kind of just wake up and brace ourselves for what is to come and it feels really scary and hard and because it is really scary and hard. I just really appreciate y'all who are tuning in and continuing to listen to this podcast every week because I know for me, this project has been really keeping me super grounded and has kept me from spiraling out, to be honest. And yeah, it's just it's really it's a really helpful space for me to like connect and build um, with folks during this pandemic. Um, So, yeah, how have you been holding up, Paige?
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, we're at the stage where officially weekends mean nothing anymore, like (laughs) at all. Um, I just, yeah, you know, we have, it's been a struggle to just find the time to even record this little intro because it's just so many meetings. And, you know, we found this time it's Sunday afternoon, which used to be my like day of rest and resetting and cleaning. And I am, five hours into meetings already. So anyways, yeah. I'm um I had a cute conversation with my mom actually where she was like, you just gotta get to December twenty first because then you can just start to observe the days getting longer again. And it helps. I'm just like, all right, gotta get to December twenty first. It's something. It's some literal ray of light of hope <laughs> in the future. Yeah, but it's a lot. This week, you know, is gonna be a lot. Uh we've got in Chicago here We're expecting city council to vote on the budget, and it's not looking like it's going to pass, Um, and it seems like, you know, it's this interesting thing where we don't want this budget to pass. It's Lori's budget, and it gives a greater proportion of city resources to the police, which we don't want, but a lot of aldermen are going to vote no because they oppose the property tax increase. And we want to make sure that the problem here, that, that we're, we're forcing Lori to lose on our terms, those being that we don't want this budget to pass because it is anti-black, right? It, it's anti-black, it gives more money to police, uh, and it doesn't have progressive tax revenue. Um, and so that's going to be a big thing that's happening right now. We, we want Lori to lose because it doesn't include things like treatment, not trauma, where we're diverting resources and, uh, and having less police interacting with people. And uh, we want it to lose because it doesn't include progressive tax revenue, not just because it, it increases taxes on
0: people who own property.
1: Um, so yeah, it's gearing up. It was not a weekend and it's going to be a long week.
0: Yeah. You know, I kind of want to keep on my tradition of um, letting listeners know, especially listeners outside of Chicago, how much I don't, how much we don't like Lori Lightfoot here in Chicago. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so in what should that Lori Lightfoot pull this week? News, uh, Lori. Yeah, you were talking about the budget. Lori announced that she's now including quote immigrant protection in her budget because quote, there isn't much good to vote for in her budget. (laughs) Um, This woman is literally holding protections for immigrants hostage to make sure her budget passes. She's, oh my God, she's threatening aldermen who don't vote in favor of her budget. Uh, She's making these ridiculous stay home PSAs like these videos when the reality, uh, about, about how we should stay home because of COVID, but in the reality is that her negligence has caused all of these cases to skyrocket by reopening so much of the city before we were even ready to. So yeah, so I've been thinking about how we're just really battling this disinformation struggle here locally with her um, because her identity and her supposed values say one thing, but then her actions do something completely different, something really harmful. Um, and I know that Winning the narrative isn't some organizer's favorite thing to do, and a lot of folks that I deeply respect don't see that as part of an organizing strategy. But to me, I really feel like we really can't separate the narrative battle from our organizing strategy, um, especially if we want to shift power in order to cover more ground in Chicago and, and you know everywhere. So I think it's important to, yeah, just keep naming how harmful and toxic she is for our for our struggling communities here in Chicago. Yeah. Ugh.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, fuck Lori Lightfoot um, If you didn't know there's a whole ass campaign called Stop Lightfoot that is well documented uh, Also, yeah, I mean I think that's a perfect segue though because I, today, you know, we talked to uh, Asha Ransby who is so brilliant, I was really excited to just listen to what she had to say about any book of her choosing and I really liked uh, the discourses on colonialism that she, she brought to us um, and yeah, and I mean, I, I want to talk more about how you felt about the interview and and this episode. I really loved it. Um, I remember one of the things that I was really it felt important to to reground myself in is how colonialisms and these systems of oppression are not just the, the uh, enforcement, right, are not just police, right, and are not just policies. They're also the ways that we think, right, they're ideologies. And I think ideologies are the things that feed and fuel our narrative. And that's why narrative is an important site of resistance and pushing and challenging, because it's, it's the tip of the tongue, right, of the head of the, the ideology. Uh, and so I don't think it's insignificant when when we force her to uh, change her the her the reason she's giving, or to try to change the conversation and divert away from what's going on. Um, and yeah, I appreciate the the connection to disinformation that you're making. Yeah,
0: yeah. Asha made these connections between surrealism and and abolition when we were talking about the methods to ending colonialism, like towards the end. Um, I yeah, I just think that there's so many different ways we need to be talking about abolition and so many different like metaphors and really concretely think about what abolition looks like and so yeah so asha is really i think she's really good at breaking down like super large ideas right into really easy to digest snippets um so i think folks are really going to like this episode i'm really excited for folks to listen yeah if there's
1: any conversation that we've had that I wish we had another hour I, it definitely this was one of them Asha in this episode is talking about discourses on colonialism and in his book he is it's it reads like an is it a, is it a book is it an essay is it a poem and it It talks through colonialism experiences as a black person who's experienced colonialism and speaks to resistance and revolution and was written at a time where you have anti-colonial movements popping off across the world and it had great influence. And it was really cool to talk about this book because I think it is still relevant, absolutely, but maybe especially right now where I think interesting conversations are happening about the connections between capitalism and colonialism and anti-blackness. And I know for me, it took me the whole conversation to realize like, oh, I am like, I'm, I'm learning different definitions right now. And it's really, it's helping unlock and see the world differently in ways that that are helpful for for the ways that i want to keep fighting Um, and so i really loved it i would love to talk more about this with folks i'm curious to hear what people think and with that just take a listen
0: you're listening to the lit review podcast we're your hosts paige may and monica trinidad i think it's essential for people to learn together In order to be able to understand what we're up against.
1: We must disrupt, we must disobey, we must agitate, we must escalate, we must break, we must create, we must abolish, we must
0: transform. I remember it. She was shocked by my help.
2: In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago, this is home for most This is the home of the wealthy Making cameos, this is the house Of the heartless, the home of the cold Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than Homeless folks, this is the house of generations Caged
0: Asha, we're really glad you're joining us on the Podcast today to talk about How this essay has influenced you as An organizer in Chicago And for those that don't know uh, Asha, Paige, and I go way back to We Charged Genocide Organizing In 2014, we traveled to the United Nations together in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, to lift up the name of Dominique Franklin a Demo, who was killed by Chicago police that year. Um, and we also co-authored a short essay on that whole experience in the book, uh, Who Do You Protect? Who Do You Serve? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States, published by Haymarket Books. Um, so we're really excited to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, for folks that are listening, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are, what do you do and why you do it?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm really excited to, to dig into talking about this book with y'all. Um, so yeah, I'm Asha. I live here in Chicago. I am an abolitionist. I am an organizer you know, most recently have been throwing down with the Defund CPD campaign and the Black Abolitionist Network, Um have organized a long time with BYP 100, um, and, and I'm all also now s- supporting the new youth anti-militarist formation that is dissenter. So yeah, that's kind of where I situate myself. I came into organizing also as a poet, which is relevant to why this book is important to me. So yeah, that's me.
1: Let's talk about it. Yeah, so this book is somewhat of a poem, from what I gather, uh, slash essay, and before we talk too much about it, can you give us a little bit more context about what was going on when it was written, a little bit more about the author maybe, to give us some background?
2: Yeah, definitely. The essay that grounds this book was first written by Amy Cezare in 1950, and then rewritten and republished in 1955. Amy Cezare is a black surrealist thinker and revolutionary and poet uh, from Martinique. Who you know went and sped, spent some time and studied in in France in Paris, where he kind of interacted with the, the French surrealist poets and really kind of connected with that movement, um, and was also a part of the French Communist Party. Um, and it was a publisher of the French Communist Party that originally that published the original essay. And you know, 1955, right? So you're seeing rising. And you know, colonialism is on its like last legs, and you're seeing rising um, independence movements around the world. Um, and people are, you know, people of across, you know, the global south, the third world, the darker nations, whatever. Yeah, this is a a formative text in those resistance movements and how people are understanding the systems. Uh, they were up against and how we really reformulate our identity uh, to fight for liberation.
1: I feel like there's all these, uh, these conversations happening now about colonialism, fascism, revolution, that this book is very applicable for right now. And I'm excited to be talking about it. Can you tell us more about what led you to read it?
2: Yeah, I read this book early in college after, you know, recently having moved to New York and really finding radical community of peers uh, was a very like transformative time for me and yeah i had joined this group called students against mass incarceration which was a black radical prison abolition group when i joined like most of what we were doing was like reading things and staying up late and talking about ideas and like i lived in this social justice house in college that so was very you know held, holds a lot of memories for me um, and we'd like sit on the stoop of that and, and kind of talk politics often. Um, and so this book was one that was like shared with me of a, of a friend who, who was in that group with me. Um, and we literally had this copy that got passed around and like, different ones of us were writing you know, notes in the margins. And like, by the time I got it, like pages were falling out. Yeah, me and that, like, group of friends and comrades were really excited about just the idea of black surrealism and the idea of revolutionary poetry. We were all writing poems at the time. I was a part of a poetry collective. We would, like, smoke weed and, like, play these, like, surrealist writing games that we, like, read that Cesare had, like, done, you know, back in the day. So, yeah, it really spoke to us. And it, it was a book that I read in community and, like, read my comrades' notes in the margins at the time. So...
1: Can you just start to tell us more about, like, what is Cesar
2: talking about? Uh, what is this book about? Discourse on Colonialism. Cesar is really about the nature of colonialism in the 20th century and a critique of European thinkers who promoted these ideas of progress and civilization and the rights of all, um, while upholding very explicitly racist ideas about racial inferiority. And justifying the brutal violence of colonization, um, and it's just kind of like blowing up all of these ideas that, um, yeah, that that are the dominant ideas in Europe at the time, and exposing the contradiction of saying that you're a quote in that whole idea of civilization, right? That you can call yourself a civilized society, and um, you know. Literally send armies into other parts of the world to to demolish other. I mean, there's some very like graphic descriptions of the violent nature of colonialism in the book. And the also the thing that's relevant to the conversation around fascism that he does in the book is that he is really critiquing also the moral righteousness of uh, these same thinkers who wrote about being appalled and condemned Hitler. Um, and, like, just compares how similar their ideas, ideologies and ideas actually were. Um, And he, you know, he argues that because of colonialism, because of capitalism, Hitler is the logical conclusion, like, this is exactly what all of these systems have always been about. Um, And it's kind of, you know, hypocritical for uh, folks to be acting like this is a surprise when this is exactly what uh, the same you know nations have been doing to, to other people around the world for a long time. One, he really he talks about kind of pre-colonial African societies and affirms their like sophistication, um, affirms things that we can learn from those societies, and also makes it clear that he's not advocating for like a kind of utopian like return to the past, but more so like a disruption of the idea that Europe equals civilization, that colonized societies were uncivilized. That that whole framework is a European invention used to justify white supremacy, violence, um, and and exploitation. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the basis of of this you know term and idea that he coined called negritude. Can you quickly
0: say for folks listening who might not know what negritude is, what that means, and also there's this distinct word that he uses in the book to describe these acts of dehumanization that are occurring in Europe. Um, Can you talk about that too? I think these terms are important for folks to understand in order to contextualize what um, Cesar is talking about.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in short, negritude was this term that he coined to encapsulate a pride in blackness and a reclamation of the history of African-descended peoples as, like, something, you know, to learn from at a time when it was really normalized to accept or believe that, you know, the African continent was a place of, like, savagery or barbarism. Like, those were, like, normal things to say. And it also is, like, you know, we talk about, like, reclaiming language over the time. And so, like, the term, you know, Negre was, like, uh, some would consider, like, an offensive term. And so it was kind of, like, reclaiming, like, a negative term that people would use to talk about black people and it was it was diasporic as well which i think is like unique and relevant so the term he uses thingification i think is it sounds maybe like the word objectification that we use now and and is related to that but maybe he's talking about something a little bit different and i think really what thingification is trying to get at is this process of dehumanization separation from the humanity of all of us that happens through violent and brutal uh, systems and processes like colonization, and that you can only even actually execute and implement something that violent if uh, you're reducing the humanity and all of it, and um, you know seeing people as animals and seeing you know land as as objects and um, you know treating our entire environment and, and, you know, society in this way that is uh, kind of like sucking the meaning out of it, if that makes sense, so thingifying it. He also invokes, like, kind of all Europeans who are, like, going about their everyday lives until Hitler, like, not being uh, upset about the horrors of colonialism. He, you know, really calls calls them into being accountable for the violence that has been happening throughout this history and um, you know, cause the atrocities of colonialization, something that is actually dehumanizing to everyone. I think one of the things that is really helpful for me
1: is I remember when I first started organizing or, and was, uh, especially when Black Lives Matter started coming up, there was this tension of, of like, but we all, it's all white supremacy and, and, and the desire to sort of collapse, ra- Everything into racism. And, and this book, I think it sounds like is, is Helping to clarify these sort of different structures of the logics of white supremacy, and um, and and making the distinction between capital, like that, and that capitalism and colonialism are both. Pro- projects of it, um, with technologies, but also ways of thinking and like words and things like that. First of all, like, does that sound right? Also here in the U S usually when we talk about decolonization, we're not talking about black people. And so what are the ways that you see this book
2: helping to influence things like the black lives matter movement? I think it's, I think what you're saying is right. Césaire doesn't necessarily say that in the book, but I think he demonstrates it, right? So this is not written in like a the format of a typical like political philosophy type situation. It's a prose poem. Sometimes you feel like he's talking to you, sometimes he's talking to the European thinkers that he's like quoting in the book at one point he like puts a quote in there and then it's like, who do you think said that? Like, It sounds like Hitler, right? And he's like, no, this is like somebody else. So it's, it's very like conversational and very kind of stream of consciousness e. but I, I do think that what you're summarizing is really what he's trying to um, show and demonstrate, right? That um, one, that there are these fundamental ideas or assumptions that we take for granted that we all get taught and structure society, and we don't even acknowledge them as ideas. And so, one, he pulls those to the surface and then exposes that, like, none of this shit makes sense without racism that is, like, and, and, and not even just racism, but the creation of race um, as a justification for really, really brutal violence and control. Um, that happens through colonization and then sets us up for modern capitalism. But who are,
0: who are we talking about when we're talking about the, the people that are involved in this colonialism? And I know that Cesar refers to like these watchdogs of colonialism in the book.
2: Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So Cesar talks about a number of different people. So one he talks about and names like specific generals and military leaders that did the, you know, in-person physical work of killing people, of, uh, you know, rampant, uh, you know, enacting rampant sexual violence, torturing people, and decimating communities. Then he talks about the thinkers and the people who put forth these ideologies that kind of are treated as, like, the most, you know, elevated form of, like, how we be in in civilization and it's all kind of this empty this empty language of equality and and all of that but they're like then the same people that write about racial inferiority so that he exposes that contradiction um definitely that piece feels relevant to today when we're looking at kind of like just blowing up this language of of equality Um, and then The, the last group of people, which I think is what you're talking about, that he talks about are like, just kind of the people that go to work every day. Like, they're maybe not the academics who are writing those things, but they're, you know, participating in, in institutions that are, you know, promoting these ideas. They're the bank tellers. Um, they're the people that know or read the headlines that these violent things are being done. Um, in their name or like in, uh, support of their like national identity or, you know, their nation or whatever. Um, and who don't say or do anything about it. Um, and he talks about those as really being the people that let this, uh, let these atrocities continue. So
1: I guess, so as you were saying that, that just felt like, america like does that doesn't that indict everyone in America <laughs> first of all, and then also, I think when you were introducing the book, you were explaining sort of this is written at the moment where all the this like revolt is taking place in colonialism that it, like so I guess I want to challenge this idea of like that we 're post colonial like what does that mean right like i, I mean I, I'm saying this with like a wink, wink nudge, nudge, like we don't have empires anymore right <laughs> so what what does this mean
2: yeah, I mean. We certainly do have empires, and you know the end of colonialism as it looked in the, you know, first part of the 20th century. It was really a reform of imperial of that version of imperialism, and you know what we have, and you know the innovation is neoliberal capitalism, um, and so we have nation states around the world, many of which were, you know, kind of like, quote unquote, one through independence struggles that ended uh, this like kind of more direct form of colonialism. Um, but I kind of like hint at earlier, this idea that, um, you know, those colonial relationships still exist, the racial hierarchies still exist, even if the world has figured out more coded ways of talking about it, right? So we're not talking about savages, but we're talking about criminals, and both of those things are are just talking about anti-blackness. Um, you know, we're, they're not saying like that that literally indigenous peoples of the global south like didn't have the the human capacity to like govern themselves or to like manage their own land so that's not exactly the knowledge that's being said but it's that countries are like developing or the US needs to like go somewhere to wage war under the guise of like bringing freedom and democracy there's like still this same idea and logic that these like nation state superpower type countries have some moral superiority a better way of governance and they have to export that and that piece has always been the part that was that's the facade that's the curtain um, and underneath that is like the strategic use of racial hierarchy um, to justify um, violence that allows like this exploitation to happen so it's it's not that um, you know other parts of the world are necessarily struggling by any fault of anyone's own but that uh, violence has, uh, maintain the destabilization of uh, indigenous economies in a way that allows the U.S. Um, and European nations to exploit and profit of of everyone. Yeah,
0: and to what Paige was saying too, I was like, "Oh my God, yes, um, this is this is America. This is America. This is what we're seeing today." The Cesar offer what in the book, any sort of strategies or like solutions? How do we eradicate colonialism? How do we, how do we
2: end colonialism? I mean, one, the surrealism piece I think is, is central because what he's really doing in this book is laying out all of these ideologies, some of which are invisible, some of which are hyper visible um, and like tearing them apart. And I think, you know, surrealism he sees as a tool uh, not only for like demonstrating kind of how we break free of the logics that structure our society, but even for himself as someone who, you know, went to school and studied in the heart of empire, um, you know, as something that that allows him as an individual, as a revolutionary to, to break free of some of the things he's been indoctrinated in. So just that as a tool, I think, is is important
1: Can you clarify what is Surrealism?
2: So, I mean, it started as a literary and artistic movement. I think the thing that people know are like paintings that look like a warped reality. But it started as a literary and poetic movement um, that was kind of about being able to imagine beyond the rules that dictate how our current reality works. Yeah, so Cesare, you know, is there's an interview at the back of the book where he's, you know, quoted saying, like, um, that it was finding surrealism and finding the French surrealists that he met in Paris was um, less of a revelation and more of an affirmation and a confirmation. And, um, you know, Robin Kelly writes a lot about Afro surrealism too and and just kind of affirms and repositions it in, like, the black radical tradition as. You know, both a way to like access and reclaim the past, but also to imagine um, and not be confined by the things that were maybe actually even indoctrinated like by ourselves. Um, And so, yeah, doing that through like art, through poetry, through imagination, but also seeing it as uh, deeply, deeply political. Um, and I think I don't know that to me speaks a lot to what we talk about when we talk about abolition, right? It's like literally like not just about tearing down the physical prisons, but like getting the co- you know the cops out of our heads thing um, to be able to even see what's possible. Um, so yeah, that's what surrealism is is about.
0: When I think about surrealism, I think about the uh, exquisite corpse, which is like where where for. for in the artist world, I don't know how many people do this, but um, you take a piece of paper and you draw something and then you fold it and then you pass it to the next artist and then they add a next part and so on and so on. And it's like this collective art process. And so, yeah. And so I think when I think of surrealism, I do think about this like collective imagination and this possibility for like another world, right? And like something that can exist beyond what's right in front of us and It makes me think of something that bria royal who is an ftp would would say she said once during a a panel she was like all of this shit is just some made-up shit and like we can make shit up too and it could be better you know and i just i love that so that's sort of what was going through my head with with this piece
2: yeah the exquisite corpse thing it's funny because we used to do a version of that but it was with poems and so you would write a line, and you know, fold the the piece over, and write the next, and another person would write the next line of the poem, and they would be like these super insightful things, and we'd have such great conversations just based off of that. Um, in a way that if we were responding to what was put in front of us um, or confined by that, we never would have seen or put
1: together. Yeah, I actually the day that I met you, Asha, you were leading a training at uh, we were at, at UIC somewhere, and you led us in. This, first of all, you define power in a really helpful way for me. And then you led us through this activity where we folded up a piece, of, or we got a piece of paper, and what you would write the answer to a question. Any question. No, no one knew what the question was. And then you would hand it to the next person, and they would write the question. I'm trying to remember. It's something to do with, like, you were writing a question without knowing what the, like, with no context, and then someone was answering a question that they didn't know what it was. Uh, and... I can be very process and structural, and I have absolutely internalized a lot of like logics of colonialism and capitalism and and activities like that really challenged me and undo me. And I was like, this isn't going to work. And then it was the most (laughs) amazing, like (laughs) you just like thought of all these really dope things without having any idea. Like there was, you know, just this undoing of structure and taking basic things like the question comes before the answer and just like flipping that on its head. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the first time I met you. Uh, and I'm wondering, actually, do, do you think that that has anything to do with why the book is written the way that it is, where it's it's not a how-to, it's not a manual, it's it, is it an essay? Is it a poem? Is it a book? Or it, like that even of itself feels like part of the the point.
2: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think you're seeing like a window into Amy Cesare's brain and not like trained philosopher writing in the way that they're taught um and I think that's like a part of you know the magic of it It even felt like in some ways it feels like a literary kind of like collage like he he pulls quotes not to like analyze them but to like talk to them and to make them talk to each other and um he goes between like talking to you the reader and talking to the people he's quoting and talking with himself and um yeah, that's just like, he takes you on a journey. And I think, I don't know, that's a powerful way to engage with the text, I think. So
1: how has this book influenced your organizing, the ways that you move through organizing spaces? And what were your main takeaways?
2: I think that, yeah, really the main takeaway is the importance of ideology, both, you know, in deconstructing the systems that we're up against, and in terms of Yeah, just equipping ourselves to know what we have to do to get free and kind of reformulating ideas to to form a vision of the world. Um, You know, you could call it hegemony, you could call it dominant ideas, you could call it the status quo, um, but there are these fundamental ideas or assumptions that kind of just like float over society. We don't even all the time acknowledge them as ideas. Um, And the role of, organizers of radicals of people who want to change the world is to um is to expose that and to kind of like pull the carpet of like normalizing all of that out from under it or like pull back the curtain and expose these are actually ideas and beliefs and you can choose to believe in them or not um and that's kind of like the a necessary part of even making change possible in like a radical or fundamental or transformative way um and so creating that space for people is is super important and you know I've read other things that talk about that same thing but this kind of spoke spoke to it in a powerful way for me you know kind of like a poetic revolutionary enlightenment type you know thing is is necessary to become truly radicalized and you know I think we can get really caught up in like the material world but um it's ideas that that dictate how the material world works. Um, And so we have to engage meaningfully in them um, in order to change material conditions. Cesare is kind of uh, affirming that like, you know, there are examples in the world of how to structure society that we can look at in history. And we also have the the agency and possibility in future to like imagine things that have never been done before. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think that empires have to fall, not just reform. The empires are still here. Like, they didn't go anywhere. They're, they still exist. They're the same ones. Um, and they have just reformed how they enact imperialism and how they exploit the, the world um, and, and particularly how they use white supremacy to do those things. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think on a global scale, there needs to be a restructuring of, like, who governs. Um, And that means like there's not going to be a nation state with the same name as the empire that uh, colonized, you know, a third of the world anymore. Those things, those, yeah, the empires need to to truly fall um, and something else needs to emerge. And it's not going to happen through reforming uh, the same like political structures and systems. So... Yeah, and I think I don't know, this is interesting to engage with I didn't talk about this, but Cesare what Fanon was Cesare's student, um, and is, you know, I think more like well known or more well read and you know, I don't know. I think it's interesting to think about how Fanon's ideas about like national liberation movements and independence movements like apply today and you know, how we see the shortcomings of that when the empire still exists. Um, and Fanon was even critical of Césaire's, like, negritude because he thought it was too broad. The diasporic, the diasporic piece wasn't enough and that people had to have a sense of national identity. And, like, if you're leading, a nas- like, a national liberation movement, like, I get that. Like, people need to feel connected to that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of riffing now. But I think those things in conversation with one another tell us lessons for now.
1: There's interesting conversations happening around, yeah, how we we need like a black nation within the U.S. But then it has weird dynamics to the fact that we're not quite settlers, but we're also not indigenous to here. Anyway, so this is a a big question um, that I'm wondering if if this essay helps us think about it as black people that were take that were stolen and brought here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is important and you know in my like new role at dissenters have been thinking a lot about um, I think you have to talk about slavery in telling the history of colonialism you have to do it and when we talk about thingification like what more like literal dehumanizing thing happened than these colonizers came, took control of lands and people Killed people and then, you know, pointed to some and, and tried to turn us into property um, and, and then brought us to like some other place that they also were colonizing um, and forced generations into slavery to build up a, another, you know, empire. So I think you have to talk about that in the, the history of colonialism. I don't think it's a separate or like disconnected legacy. And, yeah, that is, a, we we were colonized too, right? Not just, like, our lands, but our our, our bodies and our an, ancestral legacies and all of that. You know, even to how, like, Cesare's writing from the perspective of being from Martinique, right? Like, black people uh, were brought all across the Caribbean and forced into into slavery. Not, you know, not just in, this happened in the U.S., of course, but it happened in, Uh, places that were simultaneously being colonized so yeah I I think our liberation is important in talking about decolonization I think connecting it to the defunding the police piece you know I think it's about taking defunding the police is just is about taking resources and taking legitimacy away from policing right Um, and so I think that's kind of maybe where some of the ideology piece comes in and that you know the history of policing there are so much of how police function and work from like surveillance technologies uh to like physical strategies that they use to like literally the process of fingerprinting was something they experimented with and first started doing in the philippines like it was through uh colonial police forces uh that were yeah i mean you know the origins of like policing is is all tied up in in colonialism, both European colonialism and U.S. colonialism, um, and how they've used, you know, colonies to experiment with strategies that they then bring back to control Black people, um, and vice versa. Thank you, Asha,
0: so much for being on our show today. Um, folks can find discourse on colonialism online um, as a downloadable PDF. Um, encouraging everybody to check it out, read it, um, let us know your thoughts on it too. Um, Asha, we ask every guest to close us out with, uh, their favorite passage from a book. Uh, so if you can read to us what, what moved you
2: in this book? Okay. It's been, it's been great chatting. I love this. Um, and I'm pulling up my passage. Um, I wanted to know, can I read two passages? Sure. (laughs) Okay, so I referenced this passage earlier, um, but but I'll read the actual passage, and this is the very beginning of this section, so that'll give you like a feeling for how it kind of works. Therefore, comrade, you will hold as enemies, loftily, lucidly, consistently not only sadistic governors and greedy bankers, not only prefects who torture and colonists who flog, not only corrupt, check-looking politicians and subservient judges, but likewise and for the same reason, venomous journalists, goitrous academics wreathed in dollars and stupidity, ethnographers who go in for metaphysics, presumptuous Belgian theologians, Chattering intellectuals born stinking out of the thigh of niche, the paternalists, the embracers, the corruptors, the backslappers, the lovers of exoticism, the dividers, the agrarian sociologists, the hoodwinkers, the hoaxers, the hot air artists, the humbugs, and in general all those who, performing their functions in the sordid division of labor for the defense of Western bourgeois society, try in diverse ways and by infamous diversions to split up the forces of progress, even if it means denying the very possibility of progress, all of them tools in capitalism, all of them openly or secretly supporters of plundering colonialism, all of them responsible, all hateful, all slave traders, all henceforth answerable for the violence of revolutionary action. And then he continues, the essential thing is that their highly problematic subjective good faith is entirely irrelevant to the objective social implications of the evil they work to perform as watchdogs of colonialism. Thanks
1: so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books to help grow our movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionist organizers. We'll be back next week with another episode next Sunday. Same time, same place. Want to learn about a specific book? Email us your suggestions at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Financial support for the production of this podcast is thanks to our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the lit Keep reading.